This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Let me suggest to you that Elon Stavins um, has an enormous influence um, looking at the synergies of literature and culture uh, in Latino civilization. And as a part of that, he's focused a great deal of his energies on Jewish storytelling. Um, And I want to just mention a few of his publications, which are stunning in their breadth. Um, One of his most recent publications is the Mayan Popol Vuh, um, a retelling. And of course, the Popol Vuh is the uh, Mayan Uh, cosmology and cosmography. Um, He's also the editor of the Oxford Handbook of Latino Studies. Um, This year he published, or last year he published a volume entitled How Yiddish Changed America and America Changed Yiddish. Um, uh, Also in 2020, he published um, a volume and edited uh, entitled And We Came Outside and Saw the Stars Again writers from around the world on the COVID-19 pandemic. He's written on Jorge Luis Borges. Um, Over my shoulder, you see uh, his collection of Jewish stories from Latin America entitled Oi Caramba. Um, And uh, he's written on uh, Don Quixote. He's the editor of the three volume Isaac Beshevitz Singer, the collected short stories in the library of America. One of my favorites is entitled uh, El Illuminado, um, a graphic novel from 2012. And that graphic novel starts out with a young man running uh, and uh, he's ultimately, um, uh, uh, he, he ultimately dies when he falls off a cliff. And that begins this extraordinary mystery in which Professor Stavins is giving a lecture, I think in the Santa Fe Cathedral, and he's challenged by someone about, well, how do you know anything about crypto Jews? And it's just an extraordinary uh, story. And if you love Santa Fe, um, the graphic uh, artwork with this novel um, is, it just immediately reminds you of all things Santa Fe and New Mexico. Um, One of his great achievements is as the general editor of the Norton Anthology of Latino Literature. Uh, It's this huge uh, volume. Um, It's um, 2,700 pages in length, and I believe it has over 250 writers. Uh, One of those writers is Don Luis Leal. Um, And uh, Don Luis was a friend of many of us on the Santa Barbara campus. Um, And uh, I think Ilan published one of the most important essays of Don Luis uh, entitled In Search of Atzlan. Um, And I remember having coffee with uh, Don Luis and several other colleagues in in, uh, Spanish and Portuguese and Chicano studies um, during um, the, the 1980s about that uh, essay. Um, 
I also want to just mention um, his um, volume entitled Resurrecting Hebrew that was published by the Schocken, um Press, um, uh, and it's in their Jewish Encounters. It's really about the recreation of, of Hebrew as a living language. And I love the dedication uh, in that um, he dedicates that to Helena Rubenstein, my fourth grade Hebrew teacher at Der Yiddische Schule in Mexico, gracias and ba'achava, uh, thank you and with love. Um, uh, another extraordinary book of his is entitled Spanglish, The Making of a New American Language from 2003. And then in 2018, he did a translation of Don Quixote uh, of La Mancha in Spanglish uh, with Robert Roberto Wilde, who did the illustrations for that. So it's an extraordinary event to have Elon Stavins talking about um, his most recent book, which is entitled, as you know from our flyer, The Seventh Heaven Travels Through Jewish Latin America. Uh, it's a stunning, absolutely stunning volume. You open it up, you can't put it down. So without any ad further ado, I want to introduce you now to Elon Stavins, who will tell us about this marvelous book, The Seventh Heaven Travels Through Jewish Latin America. Uh, welcome, Elon. Thank you very much, uh, Richard. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be part of this uh, extraordinary lecture series that uh, you and the University of Santa Barbara have built over the years with such uh, distinguished guests. Uh, I feel uh, honored and proud. And I feel uh, also very uh, happy to be connected uh, again with the University of California at Santa Barbara, where I have very close friends, starting with Don Luis Leal, who was a mentor to me and a figure of a remarkable importance in Chicano studies and in Latino studies, who I met at Santa Barbara, with whom I did research and who invited me a couple of times there. So it feels like home and I am uh, excited to be talking about this book today with everybody, friends, uh, wherever you are. Let me tell you about two events that catapulted, that triggered uh, the, the writing of this book. They happened uh, some years ago, uh, close to a decade at this point, and they were uh, unrelated to one another. One is a dream and the other one was a, a, a reading that I had just done more or less at the same time. In this dream, and often a, a book of mine will start with a dream, though the dream remains unexplained or disconnected until I get deep into the book and I sort out uh, my own demons and, and the mapping uh, of, the, of the, the subject of the book. In this particular dream, I was eager to go back to the house in Mexico City where I was raised in the neighborhood of Copilco, the southern part of the city next to UNAM, the university, Universidad Autónoma de México. It was the house where a wonderful childhood took place and where I felt very connected with the ancestors that defined my upbringing, 
I am the grandchild of Yiddish-speaking immigrants from Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, uh, that uh, depending on the grandfather wanted to come to the United States, immigration quotas made it impossible. Uh, some of them were stationed in the Caribbean, uh, in Cuba, uh, in Puerto Rico, uh, eventually moved to Central America and made their way to Mexico City. They knew very little about Mexico, at least as far as I know and have been able to recreate from conversations that I had with a few of them uh, and from reading the chronicles and journals that either they or some of their peers left behind. Uh, I, I was born into a house where Yiddish and Spanish uh, coexisted all the time. Yiddish was the language of the domestic, the private realm. Yiddish was the language of instruction at school, uh, the language in which we also learn Mexican history, not only Yiddish history, not only Sholem Aleichem and Peretz and Abramovich, but we learned in Yiddish about the, the war of independence and the revolution and about the, the ups and downs of the Mexico and politics during the 20th century. In this dream, I was uh, eager to enter that house, which I left in the mid eighties to move and become an immigrant myself uh, to New York. Um, and outside of the house, there was a disheveled man who I couldn't recognize that uh, spoke in a strange, un unclear language to me that was a mix of uh, Yiddish and Spanish in French, in Ladino. I couldn't quite understand uh, what he was telling me, but it was clear that he was announcing that I was not uh, welcome into my childhood home and that I needed to stay just on the outside premises. Uh, the man uh, distilled the strange odor and I was very uncomfortable and he kept on pushing me away. It wasn't an unpleasant dream. And at one point I woke up uh, all sweaty and uh, also aware that this dream had uh, an importance to me that uh, maybe I wasn't able to catch right away, but that it would be coming back to me time and again. The other event that happened to me more or less at that same time is that I stumbled upon a, a volume of a, in, trans, in English translation of a book originally written in Yiddish called Churm Galicia, the destruction of Galicia. And Galicia here is not a reference to Spain. It's a, it's a reference to the section in the Pale of Settlement a, in the corner of Poland where some of my ancestors and Yiddish speakers in general had existed from the ninth century up until the beginning of the 20th century. The author of this book is Ansky, the very same one that is known for writing the play, The Dibuk, about this exorcist that takes out a demon from a a bride uh, that has been taken over by the lover that she rejected or that she distanced herself from a long time. 
Uh, Ansky, aside from being a playwright, he is known for this extraordinary play, was really an ethnographer. Maybe we could call him today a kind of a proto-anthropologist who roughly around the, the time of the First World War decided that um, the Jewish communities of Eastern Europe at that time, between five and six million altogether, could well be in danger of disappearing because of pogroms, because of rising antisemitism, but mostly in his view, because of the poverty in that it was incumbent on him and others like him to record as much as he could of the imaginary life, the folklore in particular, uh, that this Yiddish speaking community had because he feared that folklore would uh, all of a sudden vanish, vanish altogether and, there, and it would leave no trace. It is by traveling with a, an incipient tape recorder and with a group of colleagues from one shtetl to another that he collected the information that ended up being this travel book, Hurden Galicia, uh, that is that, that in Yiddish has is 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 a multi-volume enterprise, but in English uh, I was re reading it in a in an abbreviated form, in that uh, is a is a statement of the world at that particular moment in time. Ansky, the way others were, could foresee the threat of the future. And it is thanks to him that we have the richness of the ethnographic landscape that uh, he provides us in this book, Horden Galicia, that allows us to go back to it and recreate it, if anything, by reading it and, and exploring the images that the book uh, is able to, to offer. Those two, the dream and the reading of Ansky's book, The Destruction of Galicia, all of a sudden captured my mind. And I thought increasingly that I was a kind of a contemporary Ansky, uh, that I come from uh, Latin America, I come from Mexico, that I have spent the last 30 years studying as best I could the varieties of the Jewish experience in Latin America. But that Jewish history is so fragile, so tenuous, so easy to erase at any particular moment, sometimes without us knowing exactly why and when, that uh, maybe I should do exactly what uh, Ansky had done I should spend some time traveling through the Jewish communities from Latin America in recreating a, the, the imagination, the dreams, the food, the, the way people dance, the way people love, the way people relate to one another, a, the, the various Jewish communities that go from the Argentine Pampas uh, where the gauchos lived at the beginning of the 20th century to the Jews that have lived in Cuba uh, during the revolution and many of whom have converted after the revolution 
in order to be part of that sustained Jewish community that mostly exists in Havana. To the Jews of Mexico, of Colombia, of uh, Puerto Rico, of Peru, of Venezuela, uh, of Chile. And so I decided that I would uh, travel uh, on my own uh, every time I could, uh, not as consistently as Ansky had done it, but I would escape on vacation. I would take a sabbatical. I would figure out uh, an invitation here and there in order to meet activists, meet rabbis, meet the uh, uh, intellectuals and teachers and, and the, the founders of the various Jewish communities. And the, the, the seventh heaven travels through Jewish Latin America is exactly that. It's an attempt to give a kind of snapshot, collective snapshot of what the various experiences in Jewish Latin America have been over uh, 500 years in how the different Jewish communities have coexisted with one another, uh, the tensions that have taken place, the rise of fascism in different countries, of neo-Nazi groups, the, the arrival of former Nazis into Bolivia and Paraguay and Argentina and Chile, and the, the way they sometimes live together in the same neighborhoods, in the same blocks with survivors of the Shoah. They could see each other from the windows and uh, the versions that have existed from the Nazis like Eichmann and Mengele to the survivors that trace them and, and help the Mossad in different moments uh, to, to trap them. Let me give you a rough sense of the demographics and, and of the history. Uh, there are approximately half a million Jews in Latin America, 500,000, uh, in a continent of 450 million. It's a minuscule number. And yet those 500,000, that half a million, is uh, or constitutes the third or the fourth largest concentration of Jews outside of Israel uh, in the world today. It is a very heterogeneous group. There have been Jews in Latin America going back to its uh, arrival to modernity when Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in that crucial uh, year of 1492. Um, he was, uh, of course, imagining a new route to the Indies, stumbled upon this uh, land that was across the Atlantic, uh, but, but 1492 is also the year of the expulsion of the Jews. And there were many that were in his crew in the three boats that were new Christians, Cristianos Nuevos, or conversos, or crypto Jews that managed to quietly join the effort and in the imagination of Sephardic Jews, in the imagination of Jews since then, Columbus has a, a mythical statue because he is seen in some quarters as a kind of Moses, uh, as a messianic figure that just as the, as the doors of Spain were closing, new doors of a paradise-like place were opening up. Uh, of course, we know that that paradise was not exactly so, the Spanish Inquisition that had established itself already at least for a century in Spain 
immediately relocated to the colonies. And while the two main centers, Mexico City, Tenochtitlan, the original name eventually called New Spain, um, and Lima in Peru, uh, where the where the the roots of where the uh, Spanish Inquisition functioned in the Americas, it was never as destructive. It was never as consistent. It was never as a, as intense and deep as its counterpart in Spain. The very first wave of uh, Jewish immigrants, if one can call them Jews, uh, to the Americas takes place then between the arrival of Columbus to that island Hispaniola that is today Haiti in the Dominican Republic and throughout the colonial period. Uh, I say if one can call it an immigration because many of them did not arrive as Jews. They arrived as uh, refugees or silent Jews, quiet Jews, hidden Jews, conversos, marranos, anusim, that is all the words, depending on the language that we use to describe those that uh, chose to keep their Jewish religion in secret and, uh, and yet still practice it uh, in the domestic realm for family purposes uh, in order to resist the oppression that the Santo Oficio, the Holy Office, had on everybody. Uh, particularly the northern part of Mexico, Sonora, Sinaloa, uh, Nuevo Leon, uh, and the southern part of the United States in places like New Mexico, uh, certain parts of Texas, uh, Colorado, etc., certain parts of California, the crypto-Jewish, the converso trail was a very important one. And today there is a resurgence of those crypto-Jews um, coming back to their uh, Jewish ancestry, not without a, a, a fight, a struggle in those families, because there are some that feel, believe that the, the Jewish ancestry is just a figment of the imagination of one or two members and others that are convinced that from ancestral times, they have been passing on the ancestors, the messages to one another. And in the book, The Seventh Heaven, I travel to different parts of New Mexico and to Sonora and Sinaloa. I visit cemeteries where in Catholic spaces, Tombstones include iconography, paraphernalia, symbols that are clearly from Kabbalah or, or, or from the Bible, where a message is being passed from the grave to the next generation that there is such a secret that goes on uh, across time. Many of the Sephardic uh, crypto Jews and the tension between those two terms is often ambivalent, ambiguous, uh, see themselves as having a, a key to Spain. Their connection is more to the Spain that, that forced them out than to Jerusalem or to Eastern Europe, clearly. And uh, I met a member of a family in New Mexico who talked to me about a key that has gone on from mothers, to daughters across generations, and it's the key to the house 
that uh, once belonged to the family in Spain. When my own ancestors arrived to Mexico uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, apparently none of them knew, none of them had the most remote knowledge that in the very same uh, Plaza de la Alameda, for instance, right there in downtown Mexico City, that famous plaza that is next to Bellas Artes in that uh, Diego Rivera uh, painted in a, in a beautiful um, image called the Domingo in, Domingo in, in la Alameda Central, um, where Frida Kahlo and Posada and Diego Rivera himself appears, but also a, a, a victim of the Inquisition. Diego Rivera, by the way, believed that he came from a family of crypto Jews, uh, secret Jews. And on the other hand, Frida Kahlo, his, his tormented wife, was, in her view, the daughter of a Jewish father, a photographer, although that is a, a contested a, a, a root or, or identity that the biographers have found to, be, to, to have been imagined by Frida Kahlo more than authentic. Um, the, in that very same plaza, in, in La Plaza, eh, in La Alameda Central, my mother, my grandmother on my father's side kissed my grandfather eh, for the very first time. And I have a photograph of them. And they clearly were not aware that an image in the back of that photograph says Plaza del Quemadero, Plaza of the Burnings or of the Autos de Fe. In that same place, where they kissed uh, and they first built their Jewish life, these two Yiddish-speaking Eastern European was where figures like Luis de Carvajal the Younger and his family and other victims, other martyrs of the Spanish Inquisition were burnt at the stake publicly in this performative uh, acts in order for others not to follow their paths. The book that Richard was mentioning uh, that graphic novel called El Illuminado tells the story of one Dutch martyr, Luis de Carvajal, who was uh, imprisoned by the Inquisition and spent several years in a cell um, convinced that he was a biblical prophet and that his role uh, was meant to be that of guiding the crypto-Jews in this diaspora uh, in the New World to their Jewish identity again. The biggest Jewish immigration to Latin America is the immigration of Eastern European Jews. It happened roughly uh, simultaneous to the, uh, the Jews that arrived to the United States from 1880 to about 1930. Uh, the two main um, magnets for immigration were of course the United States, I'm talking about this side of the Atlantic, but the other one was Argentina. Argentina was an enormously appealing place where thousands of Jews moved into. And there's a chapter in the book, The Seventh Heaven, eh, about the agricultural colonies in the Pampas eh, eh, that were eh, sponsored by two philanthropic entities, the Alliances Jailito Universal, eh, committed to bringing Jews that were eh, targeted by pogroms and antisemitism and were poor to this 
new lands in the bottom of the Americas. And the other one, probably most more famous, the Baron Maurice de Hirsch, this entrepreneur that put a lot of money to buy land. And uh, thanks to whom many of these agricultural colonies like Moisesville, Rahil, and others replicated the kind of Yiddish settled life that many of these Yiddish speaking dwellers had had before they arrived. It's an extraordinary landscape, uh, a landscape really made of oblivion these days in that uh, very few resources are, are directed in, 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 into those lands. The first mikvahs, the first shuls, the synagogues and cemeteries in the Pampas where the Jews coexisted with the gauchos in Argentina and in the border with Brazil are almost all of them forgotten. Grass has grown over. They are in ruins. Uh, there are some makeshift museums, many of them not even run by Jews, but by non-Jews who are actually not even Yiddish speakers and are collecting all the Jewish books. And one of the chapters in the book is uh, a journey in, through these cemeteries and through these mikvahs in a dialogue with those Jews that lived with, the, with the, the, the descendants of the, those Jews in Buenos Aires and in La Plata who tell me about why their parents living in this countryside eventually moved to the city. Argentina is the largest, um, has the largest con concentration of Jews in Latin America, roughly between 240 to 260,000. Uh, Some people say it comes even uh, closer to 300,000. Um, it is, uh, Argentina has always been a very multicultural immigrant community like the United States. And it has extraordinary intellectuals and writers. Uh, I followed the life of two of them, Borges, Jorge Luis Borges, the, the astonishing man of letters who was a Judophile. He wrote beautiful stories and poems and essays about Jews like Emma Tunes and The Secret Miracle and The Aleph. And his, his teacher, his mentor, Alberto Virchunov, described as the, the father of Jewish Latin American literature, who wrote a very famous book in 1910 called The Jewish Gauchos of the Pampas. He meant it as a present to Argentina. In 1910 was the first anniversary of the independence of the nation. And he, was, he wanted to be thankful to this country that opened its arms to the Jews and described it as a promised land, a place where Jews would thrive. He knew that Herzl, Theodor Herzl, had looked at Argentina as a possible, as a possible place where the Jewish state could be built. There were three, Palestine, Argentina, and Uganda. And at the one point during the World Zionist Congress, the discussion of which of these places should be selected for the building of the Jewish state had really Argentina at the top. That is part of Herzl's description in the, his book on the Jewish state. But within a few years in Argentina, Gertrunov realized that this wasn't a promised land. In 1919, the very first and so far thankfully only pogrom ever to take place in, on this side of the Atlantic occurred 
in Argentina. It's called La Semana Tragica, the tragic week. It was a labor dispute. Some historians don't call it pogrom, but Jews were targeted because they had they were the newly arrived immigrants, and they we know this rhetoric very well in the United States. They were taking space in classrooms and in houses in jobs, and so there was this animosity, this anti-Semitism that was targeting them in Jewish businesses, Jewish cemeteries, in Jews on the street where the target in many of them then died. 1919, Semana Tragica, the first pogrom, eh, kind of at the beginning of the 20th century and at the end of the 20th century, also in Argentina, there's this other eh, explosive event in 1994, the bombing of the AMIA, the Jewish Community Center in Buenos Aires, where the, the equivalent of YIVO, the, 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 the YIVO in the Spanish speaking world was located it was an Iranian operative, uh, clearly sponsored or connected with the Argentine government. Uh, Carlos Menem was the president who just died, was the president at that time. And 85 people died and the entire building collapsed. It was very clear for many of us, Latin American Jews, in 1994 that we were no longer in the periphery of the, the Middle Eastern conflict, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, we were also very much part of it. And um, we needed to be much more astute, much more prepared, much more aware of our own security and our own condition. I remember when, when uh, I was young in Mexico, one could enter a shul, a synagogue, without any uh, security issues, without any complications. Uh, after 1994, security was uh, tightened uh, all over Latin American Jewish communities. And today, in order to attend a minion, for some of us who are Latin Americans, let alone for, for visitors, it becomes a, a very complicated bureaucratic affair. You have to send your passport beforehand and, and request permission. Between those two events, a lot happened. And Latin American Jews went from being new immigrants that were finding a place for themselves to realizing that this was a, a tenuous existence for them. Uh, there's another immigrant group that is very important, Jewish one, and those, those are the, the, the Jews that, the Ottoman Jews that come from the Ottoman, the, the collapsing Ottoman empire coincide with the arrival of Jews from the Yiddish parts of the East, of Eastern Europe they speak uh, Ladino, they speak uh, Arabic, they speak French, and uh, they don't really see face to face. When I was growing up in Mexico, uh, we were told that marrying a, a shiksa would be better than marrying a shahata, that is a member of the Ottoman or the Sephardic side. And they were told exactly the same thing about the, the Ashkenazi Jews, the tension between the two sides. Um, there is another immigrant group that is also very important and that I trace in the book, and those are the refugees, the survivors, the, the exiles that come from Eastern Europe shortly, from Europe in general, shortly before the Holocaust. Latin America became a, a place where many of them applied to and wanted to be stationed. Uh, some countries like the Dominican Republic it, it sold certain spaces um, to Jewish organizations in order for these Jews 
that were escaping the Holocaust to have their own, their own land. Um, and there are important incidents in the history of Jewish Latin America, like the, the St. Louis boat uh, that tried to dock in Havana in 19, at the end of the 30s and uh, was not allowed. It wanted to come to the United States. Roosevelt also didn't allow him to station here and many of the Jews finally were sent back to Europe where um, they met their death. It's a, it's a very embarrassing and very famous uh, moment, a highlight in the history of the Jews of Latin America. What the book does, dear friends, is as a travel writer, I try to uh, map out who the, how the Jews live there, who are the Orthodox, who are the conservatives, the, the secular Jews, the reform Jews, what antisemitism has been in Latin America, in the various stages from 1492 to the present and the different stages that antisemitism has gone through. And I also talk about the Aliyah, the, the going uh, to Israel, the ascendance of many Argentines and Brazilians and Uruguayans in the 1960s and 70s and how many of those Jews live in Israel and how they have reconfigured Israeli society. Um, but I do so, and I'm coming here to the end of my chat and, and hope to have a conversation with many of you through, through Richard uh, as a moderator. Uh, what I do is I always uh, use the mechanism of the, the, the traveler who is able to engage others in conversation, to visit places and to figure out um, the history of the place according to the locals. I'm interested in the intersection between national histories a community histories and individual histories. And so I spend time with activists and with people who have been in prison, with artists, with educators, um, even grape dig diggers who tell me the story of how they inter a, a Jews in Colombia or the interactions that they have in Havana. And throughout, I, I keep on thinking in the book about what Ansky did in Europe uh, before the war. And my hope is that this is going to be a statement of the Jewish communities in Latin America, because my fear is to this day that uh, these communities might vanish very quickly with the rise of antisemitism, with, with neo-Nazi groups that have emerged in Argentina and Chile and Paraguay, in which simply the economic uncertainty that exists, many of them have moved to the United States, have moved to Europe, have moved to Israel. Many of them are still there and figuring out what their own conditions are. I, I reach here the end, and, and that end is when I arrive to one cemetery in Montevideo, Uruguay. I by then have heard uh, consistently about this man uh, called uh, Monsieur Chouchani or Chouchani that uh, people keep um, referring to as one of the great Talmudists of the 20th century. He was a teacher of Elie Wiesel. He was a teacher also of the French philosopher uh, Emmanuel Levinas. And for some reason, Monsieur Chuchani 
chose at the very end of his life to go to Montevideo, where he is buried, and to teach there a Talbot. Monsieur Chuchani didn't leave any writing. He's a kind of ghost in European history and in Latin American history. Uh, very few people know where he was born or who he was, but I saw, I saw an image of him and I realized that the man in my dream was a, at least had a semblance to Monsieur Chuchani. And I heard that Elie Wiesel had paid for his tombstone in, in, in Montevideo, having not heard of him for many, many years. So I needed to go to that, to that uh, tombstone. And uh, I felt a sense of uh, gravitas. I felt finally when I arrived that I had reached a kind of a, a, a center I met also a kind of hippie outside of, of that cemetery who then, who then, without my noticing it, joined me next to the tomb of Shushani. I was saying a Kaddish. And he started asking me why I was there. And it was clear that he was also in his own quest, in his own exploration. Um, the dialogue that I had with him was very meaningful. The last thing that I want to tell you, my friends, is that the chapter, the last section of the book is uh, a moment in which <clears throat> I return to New York, uh, finally having done all these trips, uh, beginning to transca transcribe much of the writing. Um, and I decide together with my two boys that I am going to apply for Polish citizenship. Um, I have Mexican citizenship and I have American citizenship, but it feels uh, as Trump is beginning to be part of the horizon that uh, this American diaspora might not be as secure and as ongoing as others and that it would be wise to get another passport. My grandparents would probably feel um, a kind of, regret, they ran away from Poland, never wanting to see the place again. And here I was with one of my sons in the, Mexi in the, in the Polish consulate in New York, uh, doing a test in order to get the Polish passport. To me, that is a kind of wrapping up of the story, going back to the origins without really not wanting a dream and the exploration of the of, of the Yiddish landscape that Anski had given me as a responsibility to tell the story of this fragile com community in order for future readers to know who we are, who we were, and who we could, we, who we could be if history gives us that permission. Thank you very much. And uh, Richard, uh, back to you. Yes, um, I have a question, a, a bit of a follow-up. Um, how would you um, describe um, the development of anti-Semitism in um, Latin America? You said that there were stages and there are a number of students who are following this lecture of yours who are in a class with me on the history of anti-Semitism. And this might be very relevant to our discussion uh, of uh, the history of anti-Semitism. Wonderful question, uh, Richard, and it's it's uh, I'm I'm thrilled that 
that you're teaching this class and that the students are attentive to the varieties of antisemitism. One of my, uh, one of my uh, key ideas is that uh, though antisemitism is a term that uh, defines a very large uh, phenomenon, uh, antisemitism has to be localized. French antisemitism is different from British antisemitism, from German antisemitism, and certainly from Arab antisemitism, and certainly from Hispanic antisemitism. Hispanic antisemitism is in large part the result of the most powerful inquisition ever to develop in Europe. There were inquisitions in other parts of Europe, in the Portuguese, the Italians, the French, but the Spanish inquisition because of its marriage with the state had a power unlike any other. It, Hispanic antisemitism goes through three different stages. The first one is the antisemitism that comes from the Catholic Church, and it is a theological, uh, it is theologically based. The premise is that the Jews uh, uh, kill Jesus, but at the same time that the Jews need to be kept uh, alive because they are witnesses of the passion of Christ. And so the, the history of Hispanic and anti-Semitism from the side of the church is the, the targeting of the Jews, but at the same time, the consistent uh, statement that those Jews bring the, the Gentiles back to the historical moment in which uh, Jesus uh, lived. Um, the history of, anti of, of the, the Spanish Inquisition in Spain is very nuanced and complex and the history of it in Latin America, though not as intense, as I was saying, is also very important. The second um, period of antisemitism in Latin America is economic. Um, it goes from 19, 1880 to uh, the first part of the 20th century and sees Jews as controllers of, of the global capital. Um, it is connected with the protocols of the Wise of Zion and the translations that happen in Latin America, many of which are still widely available in newsstands in the, just about anywhere you go. Um, and uh, Henry Ford's view that the, the, the international Jew, that Jews are a cabal that are taking over businesses. We today in America hear a lot of this type of antisemitism. And the last one, Richard, is the antisemitism that takes place uh, after the creation of the State of Israel, particularly um, shortly after the Yom Kippur War, and that mixes antisemitism with anti-Zionism um, and sees the local Jews as extremities of the Zionist ideology in Latin America. Uh, that one is particularly not, uh, pervasive in, this, in Argentina, in the Patagonia. There's a section in the book about that, uh, where there is a, a hideous um, myth called the Plan Andinia that uh, suggests that the Israelis are tired of the conflict with the Palestinians and are quietly buying land in Patagonia to create a new state. And so one travels through different parts of Patagonia and sees, sees a, a ads that say, no Israelis allowed, no Jews allowed. So I think it's very important to, 
Look at Hispanic antisemitism through the various prisms of history and how each of these prisms sometimes is nurtured from the others, but has a particular approach that depends on a theological thesis, an economic thesis, and the Middle Eastern conflict. Thank you very much, Ilan. Uh, uh, this question comes from a student in my class by the name of Spencer Kusengika. And he writes, Vamos, Argentina. My father was born in Buenos Aires in 1960, and his parents immigrated from Poland and the Ukraine before the Shoah. Sadly, many stayed behind. How would you describe Jewish life under the first Peron regime? Yeah. Wonderful, Spencer. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you are mentioning your father and uh, your ancestors. Um, Peron was uh, a, an important figure, one of the most important figures when it comes to the history of the delicate history of the Jews in Latin America in general and in Argentina in particular. He was a, a, a dictator, he was a tyrant, but he was also a populist. When I think of Trump today, I think very much of that mixture of a, a fascist approach, but also a very populist approach that wants to help everybody through his message. It, Peron had a, an ambivalent relationship with the Jews and depending on the moment in time, and Peron was in, was in power, out of power, came back to power, his the two wives controlled power, Edita and Isabella at various moments, um, Peron could be close to the Jewish community and then could use the Jews as guinea pigs or as targets, depending on the allegiances that he would make with uh, Europe, with European figures. Uh, I think that this allows me to mention something that is very important. In Latin America, the Jews uh, have had an ambivalent relationship with dictators. Pinochet in Chile, it was close to the Jewish community in Santiago. Uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela used the Jews of Caracas as a, as a peon in his uh, in fight against Israel and against Zionism and against the United States. Uh, there were other uh, dictators like uh, Stroessner and uh, Trujillo, who, depending on the moment, either used the Jews for their advantage uh, or rejected them. And one of the great themes to still to be studied is the relationship between the dictators of Latin America and the various Jewish communities. Thank you. Now, there's, there's another question. This is from uh, an anonymous um, attendee who writes, today there are three media networks serving the Spanish-speaking world. One is owned by Iran, another by Hezbollah, and the third by the Palestinians. These three consistently spread anti-Semitism. One unattributed story started on social media by Hispan TV. Israeli doctors were doing medical experiments, blah, blah, blah. Um. Yes, one has to, you know, the, the, the wars of the 21st century are a virtual wars, are online wars, are wars of media and a, of a misinformation. It, it's very important to remember 
that uh, if we have in Latin America as Jews, a population that is half a million, the, uh, dias the Palestinian diaspora in Latin America is enormous. Chile alone has the largest concentration of Palestinians outside of the Middle East. And it's very important to keep in mind that these populations, these Palestinian populations, are many of them uh, Christian. They are not uh, Muslim. And they have a, a, a relationship unique also to the Middle Eastern conflict and uh, to the media of their own countries. But Latin America is a fertile ground for anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist misinformation. And one of the greatest tasks that we have as Latin American Jews is to figure out how to counterattack uh, that kind of misinformation that very easily spreads very, very dangerous pieces of, uh, of, bits of, of media knowledge. Um, I, I find this, uh, uh, in the book, there's several references to this, and I find this to be the most uh, anxiety-generating aspect for many of the interlocutors that I find in Latin America, many of the Jews that I come across, how to counterattack the misinformation that is not happening on the streets, but, but that is happening on your iPhone, on your computer, and that come from Iran, uh, from Lebanon, uh, and, uh, and reach very wisely various populations that are eager to hear that information in Latin America. You know, um, I abbreviated the last part of that question you just answered, and I want to include it because it's parallel to what you're saying, uh, the anonymous attendee writes, Israel does not have an international Spanish language network. Um, that seems to speak directly to your- It to speaks your directly. And of course, um, the, the, the situation of uh, those networks uh, can itself be very contested because every time there is a network where the Jewish, uh, Jewish information is presented, it's a, in Latin America easily described as, a, as an instrument of Israel to misinterpret what is happening. Even when we don't have a network, even when Israel doesn't have a network, there is a view that can be easily attached to it. I, I wanna use this opportunity um, Richard, to mention something that I think is very, very interesting, and I, I hope the audience will, will find it as interesting as I do. Immediately after the kidnapping of uh, Adolf Eichmann uh, at the beginning of the 60s, Eichmann was one of the most important operatives of Hitler and in charge of uh, planning the final solu solution uh, during the Second World War. Um, this had been an effort by the Mossad, uh, the Israeli secret service, the, that had received information from Argentinian folks, but also from people in Germany. There, was a, a, there were a group of, of Mossad agents that came to Buenos Aires, took Eichmann, put him on a plane, uh, 
transported him to Israel where he's where he sat uh, on trial and he was uh, this was one of the greatest moments uh, challenging moments of the of the Ben Gurion a presidency and eventually found guilty. Um, immediately after that moment, the, when Eichmann had already been taken out and this was seen as a, as a great uh, success, a victory for Israel and for the forces of good after the Second World War, there was an intense wave of antisemitism uh, in Argentina that was uh, very dangerous. Argentinians thought that Israelis had, uh, had entered their country without permission, that their national sovereignty had been uh, undermined, and the Jewish community of Argentina was targeted as a result. There was a wave of anti-Semitism in newspapers, in magazines, on radio, on the streets, with slogans, with uh, swastikas. And uh, one of the most important moments was the organization that Argentine and eventually other Latin American uh, Jewish communities made of themselves, creating a, a kind of um, army of self-defense because they didn't trust the police, because they didn't believe that the government would be on their side. And uh, the, it was called bitajon in Hebrew uh, security. It had different names in different countries. And uh, it was a secret group that uh, was able to defend the Jewish communities when these Jewish communities were most uh, vulnerable. I can say all this because I myself was a member of bitajon in Mexico much later in the in the 1980s and i and i write about it in the book as well it's a it's a very important moment in my eyes in jewish self-defense in the diaspora at what point do you as a mexican or an argentine or as an american or canadian or french leave your security your well-being in the hands of the police or in the hands of the state and at what point do you decide that you yourself and your peers need to be a, need to be the ones that that take that security onto your own hands. It's a moment in my life that I think often about. At some point, I would like to write about it, and and models certain aspects of the diaspora before the creation of the state of Israel with figures like Jabotinsky and others. But it tells you about how the Jewish communities have not gone defenseless and quietly into uh, whatever attacks have taken place, but have organized uh, in order to defend themselves. Um, I want to raise a, another line of questioning that I know is very important to you because uh, it appears in many of, of the things you've written and I'm fascinated by it. Um, and one of the questions that we had is from um, Frank Engel, um, who asks, uh, as Brazil was founded by the Portuguese, do you know of any Portuguese crypto Jews in South America? Now, I want to use that question, Ilan, to raise the larger issue with you 
of the significance of crypto Judaism and the crypto Jews of um, uh, Latin America. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, Frank, for that question. Yes, the history of crypto Jews in Brazil is a fascinating one. There are uh, articles written on them. There are novels about them as well. Um, it is the history of a Brazilian anti-Semitism, the history of Brazilian Jewish assimilation is very different to uh, its counterpart in Argentina or in Mexico or in Peru, because Brazil is a very, has a very different racial, religious dynamic than other parts of Latin America. It's the largest country demographically and territorially, and yet it is also an island kind of isolated from the, from the others. Um, I am, Richard and Frank, absolutely fascinated by crypto Jews. Um, to me, crypto Jews are an enigma, are a symbol of endurance, are, uh, uh, are heroic in their way of maintaining their religion, even when that religion over time gets perverted or transformed or, or, or reconfigured. Uh, in many ways, I find the crypto Jews to be the Jews of the Jews. They are, um, they are separated, they are pointed to, they are targeted in Santa Fe, for instance, you were talking about that uh, earlier on, Richard, the Ashkenazi community is very ambivalent about those that are returning to, Ju to their Judaism that belong to, to the crypto Jewish past. Um, they want DNA proof, they, they're, they're all sorts of hurdles. Um, and of course, we enter here a very muddy terrain. Who is a Jew today? Um, who is accepted and who is rejected? Um, how far back do you trace your ancestry? Uh, and so on and so forth. I believe that the resurgence of crypto-Judaism in the last 50 years, say from the 1980s to the present, has much to do with the fact that these days, it is cool to be Jewish. It, it, it's accepted to be Jewish. Uh, the Jewish American experience, particularly in the United States, is a very successful experience. It's an, it's an experience from the margins of society to the center. In the 1910s, in the 1930s, crypto Jews did not want to come out because it was dangerous to come out. And today they can, they can make certain connections that uh, enabled them to find their roots. Um, I, I, I don't, with this, want to say that uh, the, 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 the issue of the problem of crypto-Judaism is an easy one or it's easy to solve. It is very nuanced, very lab labyrinthine, and deserves our full attention because just as American Jews, are in the middle of, a, of an intense assimilation wave of distancing themselves from their ethnic and religious background, crypto Jews, a much smaller number, are going in the reverse, finding out that they want to be Jewish. And some of them do Aliyah, go to Israel. The Israeli government has used them. It, you know, in a shameful way for their own benefit, for the, for the government's benefit. So it's a, it's, a, it's a story that is worth paying attention to. It's, it talks a lot about 
maintaining one's identity over centuries, but it also talks about what it means to be Jewish in general today in how one connects or doesn't connect with, with that ancestry. You know, the, uh, the questions are exploding. Um, and uh, I want to come back to um, several of these, I think, that are very interesting. Um, one of the rabbis here in town, I, Rabbi Ira Yudavin, asks about a very interesting uh, character from the 1960s, 70s, uh, Jacobo Timmerman. Sure. Um, what, what, how, where does Jacobo Timmerman fit in uh, to the picture that you're presenting of, uh, of Latin American Jewry? A wonderful question. There's a section in the book also about Jacobo Timmerman. Uh, I talked to um, his son uh, and people that knew him uh, closely. Jacobo Timmerman uh, is arguably one of the most important uh, activists or um, resistors of the journey of the period called uh, the Dirty War in Argentina. He was a prominent uh, editor and journalist who was imprisoned and wrote a memoir called Prisoner Without a Name, Cell Without a Number, um, uh, by the military. And that memoir is in itself an extraordinary document because there are moments in which his, his uh, victimizers tell him that they are going to do to the Argentine Jews what the Nazis didn't finish during the Second World War. They, they kind of take upon themselves uh, finishing the extermination of the Jews. But, but Timmerman is a very contradictory figure. On the one hand, he is seen, Arthur Miller, Susan Sontag, uh, many embraced him as a figure of freedom in the particularly free speech and resistance when he finally is allowed to leave the cell, to leave Argentina, he moves to Israel. He becomes very critical of Israel. He writes about the, the Lebanon war, in, in sometimes through misinformation. And he has a very ambivalent, ambivalent relationship with Israel. He goes back to Argentina and his stature begins to diminish. Um, he uh, contradicts some of the statements that he did before. I want... For the, for the benefit of the, the rabbi's question, I want to pair him with another very interesting figure uh, about whom I would like to write one day, and that is Rabbi Marshall Meyer, uh, a, a, a close uh, friend, student, and confidant of Rabbi uh, Abraham uh, Yeshua Heschel, who studied at the Jewish Theological Seminary and is the founder uh, of the conservative movement in Argentina. Uh, he created the Seminario Rabinico Latinoamericano, the seminary school in Buenos Aires, from which rabbis go all over, the, all over Latin America uh, and also in the United States. Rabbi Marshall Meyer eventually left Argentina. He was also a, a prominent activist and resistor against the the dirty war, he eventually moved to New York uh, where he became connected with Ney Jeshurun in the Upper West Side. He brought in two Argentines, Rolly and uh, Arturo. And uh, uh, he was a very important figure 
in the conservative movement in the 80s when where I met him. Rabbi Marshall Meyer's relevance as a rabbi in Latin America, arguably the most important Latin American rabbi who wasn't Latin American, but he lived there at that time. His biography needs to be told in detail. In detail, he left sermons, he left writing, he went to Dartmouth where some of his papers are. I think through him, we would understand the religious ups and downs, ups and downs of the conservative orthodox and reform movements of the Argentina in particular in Latin America. And those two, Timmerman and Marshall Meyer, to me are figures that kind of complement each other. You know, it's very interesting, Elon, because Rabbi Yudovan uh, had another sentence uh, about meeting uh, Rabbi Marshall Meyer when <laughs> they were in seminary together yeah. and they became very good friends. Um, and Rabbi Yudovan also asked, what about Rabbi Sergio Bergman? I don't know that much about Rabbi Sergio Bergman. I, 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 it, is a, it is my homework in that direction. Uh, okay. I have um, two more questions. Sure. Um, Sonia Espina writes as follows. In Cartagena, um, one of the places that opens its doors to visitors is the Palace of the Inquisition. Uh, I wasn't curious enough to visit there for obvious reasons. Did you have an opportunity to visit Cartagena? I had a, an opportunity to visit Cartagena, which is a wonderful uh, port city. Uh, I visited it because of this and because one of my idols, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, spent time in Cartagena, and I was trying to follow his 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 steps. Uh, the palaces of the Inquisition in Latin America are interesting museums or relics of the past today. There's one in in Lima. There's one in Mexico City. There's one in Cartagena. Some of them have become something altogether different. They have nothing, they are still called the El Palacio de la Inquisición, but they house uh, stamp collections or they are bureaucratic buildings for this or other purposes. Some of them uh, do retain the kind of history that at least in one floor in Mexico City, you can see the instruments that were used by the Inquisition to uh, torture those that, are, that were victimized by it. But even that part has moved out of the Palace of the Inquisition a few blocks away to a kind of a different museum. I, 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 wanna, I wanna take this opportunity to say that uh, Latin Americans in general, not only Jews, Latin Americans in general don't know a lot about the Inquisition in, in, their, in, their, in their world. Um, it is a topic that the church has kept quiet, uh, out of view. It is not in textbooks. It is seldom discussed uh, in the public sphere. And, uh, and this to me is quite uh, embarrassing, I would say, because it played such an important role during the formation of governments. Many of the independent independence figures in Latin America, say in Mexico, 
Padre Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla, the, the equivalent of, uh, of George Washington, maybe, in the United States, was targeted by the Inquisition as being a Judaizer, um, uh, un, un judaizante. Um, it will, it will, the, the landscape of Latin America will change when it becomes more interested in its Jewish past and in its inquisitorial chapter. And I think that it is uh, upon organizations worldwide to create monuments and sites of memory throughout Latin America that connect with the martyrdom of the victims of the Inquisition to remind us Latin America that repression goes further back uh, from the dirty war of the various dictatorships. It was implemented during the co colonial period, Jews, witches, uh, sexual deviance and others were targeted by it. There was a, a, a parallel life in order to resist the Inquisition. And only when we pay attention to the infrastructure of such a sophisticated institution, will we really understand uh, the, the policies and mechanisms of power uh, and of domination uh, that have been built in Latin America? Okay, one final question. Yeah, sure. Um, maybe, can we have two? <laughs> of course. So Arnie Wins Winshaw writes as follows. What fostered such a strong level of proficiency in Hebrew, in Jewish education, in Latin America, in your generation? What has happened today? Has English replaced Hebrew? Arnie, what a wonderful question. I can tell you with frightening precision, maybe, uh, the moment in which Yiddish lot lost its, its, its space in Latin America and Hebrew took over. It happened roughly in, the, in 1972 or 1973. Many of us, Arnie, had gone to Yiddish schools. I am a product of Yiddish schools. I went to the Yiddish Shule in Mexico. As I was saying at the beginning, Yiddish was one of the, the most important languages um, that I, to this day, depend on. Uh, but at one point, in the, in the Yiddish that we had wasn't a religious Yiddish. It was the Yiddish, a cultural Yiddish, the Bundist Yiddish, the Yiddish that believed by the Yiddishists that it was culture, not theology, that would make us Jews. And so we were very connected to the Yiddish culture of Sholem Aleichem and Peretz and all these uh, major figures, Mashevi Zinger uh, of Eastern Europe. But then in the 1970s, the letters and letterkers, the teachers, males and females, started dying. And it was very difficult to replace them. And at that very same time, there was an ascendance of, um, let's call it proselytism by Israelis throughout Latin America that sent shlichim, envoys, to start a building a connection between the Jewish communities uh, and Aliyah, the, the possibility of movement to the land of Israel. So I can tell you all this because there's a moment in which Yiddish no longer was taught in school 
in Hebrew became the dominant second language aside, aside from Spanish. And many of us wanted to do a Akshala, go to Israel and spend a year there. Many of I did, I lived in Israel for a year before going to college. Hebrew was, Hebrew for me was a, a decisive language and I could read Agnon in Hebrew and Chernihovsky and Bialik. And so just as the, the kind of the influence of the Yiddishist was winding down, the presence of the Hebraists was taking over. And today Yiddish is barely taught in Latin America and Mexico still has a little bit, but really minimal. Uh, Hebrew is taught, but English is the Jewish lingua franca. Uh, if you want to make your uh, children proficient in the, have a practical way in the future, most parents teach them English, thinking that that is the way to uh, help them to have uh, a, job, a job in the years to come. I want to say one last thing. I was very rebellious when I was a, a young man, thinking that my parents had done a disservice to me by teaching me Yiddish. Yiddish? I mean, who needed Yiddish? And today I am thankful to them because I feel a tie, I feel a connection, and it opened my whole field of knowledge, my research, the way I write, the way I think. I translate from the Yiddish. Sometimes I translate into Yiddish. But the Yiddish, uh, outside of the Orthodox, the Lubavitchers, the, 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 the Hasidim, uh, the Orthodox that live in Buenos Aires, in Lima, Mexico City, in Bogota, Yiddish is winding down among secular Jews. Dramatic. You know, my the last question is about Frida Kahlo, and um, you know one of the elements that emer has emerged in recent discussions of Frida Kahlo was her father. Yes. And uh, Ganit Ankori, the great art historian who now works in New York City, I believe. Yeah. Um, wrote a very powerful book on how she invented herself. And at the center were the books she found in her father's library. Yeah. And there were all kinds of midrashic texts and uh, other things of the Jewish tradition that her father had brought. Yeah. And, uh, and Corey makes the argument that Frida Kahlo was deeply influenced in this mythological world that really she imported into, if she was, um, a, um, a kind of uh, Latin American version of um, uh, European traditions in art, is really, in her argument, a Jewish midrashic art. Midrashic art. Um, it's a perfect uh, way to end. Um, uh, Richard, because I, it's, it's the misconstrued yet absolutely fascinating connections that define Jewish Latin America. Just as I was saying that uh, Diego Rivera, who was a communist, whose art, uh, street art, was really about giving voice to the oppressed, was convinced that he was a descendant of martyrs of the Inquisition. And whenever he can, 
he inserts uh, references to the martyrs in the Autos de Fe. He did a beautiful book with a Yiddish, a Yiddish poet, Itzhog Berliner, that, that Diego Rivera illustrated, though Diego Rivera no, knew not a word of Yiddish, and the book was never translated into Spanish. It's a fascinating uh, example of loyalties. Diego Rivera wanted to give presence and credence to the, this Yiddish-speaking immigrants that were arriving to Mexico in the 1910s and the 1920s. Conversely, Frida Kahlo, uh, who, the daughter of this uh, uh, German photographer, who she claimed that he was a Jew, but he wasn't really a Jew. He, he was very interested in Jewish aspects, might have told her at different moments that he was Jewish, and, and it was a cultural connection that played into her fashioning herself as, uh, as the daughter of a, of a Jewish photographer. Now, some people, as you said, have looked into her suffering, into the, 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 the pathos of that the anxiety that she shows with that, with the wounds, with the divided self, the two Fridas, as a perfectly Jewish example of diaspora life. All of us Jews are two Jews, the, 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 the Mexican Jew and the, and the Jewish Jew, so to speak. And so was Frida Kahlo. But um, I, 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 what I find fascinating is that it is all a concoction of Kahlo herself, and yet, who cares? Because in the end, a concoction or not, she is projecting uh, the, the truths that she gets from her father, transforms them in such a way, and brings them out. Uh, this happens in the 1930s, 1920s, the 1930s, the 1940s, where Jews are dying to, in the Second World War, in the Holocaust. They feel, both of them, Rivera and Kahlo, uh, a deep, honest connection with the victims. Uh, and I think it would have been a very different story had Rivera and Kahlo been around in the 60s or 70s, where Judaism is perceived from a different prism, where the state of Israel is already around. A lot of different rhetoric would have been filtered through them. So it's, uh, you know, who is a Jew? Whoever wants to say he's a Jew, maybe. And then Frida Kahlo is a perfect example, and so, and so is Rivera. You know, the, the time has gone by so quickly. It, it feels like we had just begun a few minutes ago, and already uh, we've been with you for an hour and a half. And um, before we thank you, I, I want to, again, um, encourage people to purchase this book, The Seventh Heaven, travels through Jewish Latin America because the storytelling and insight that we've uh, had the pleasure to enjoy with Elon Stavins is magnified tenfold in this wonderful book. And, you know, there are Passovers coming up. And of course, you might want to buy a book for a parent or a child. You can't buy a better book then Elon Stavins is the seventh heaven. So Elon Stavins, it has been an enormously wonderful um, time with you this afternoon. Uh, you made Valentine's Day for us. 
Thank you very, very much. Muchísimas gracias. It's been a pleasure and an honor to be with you, with the, be part of this distinguished list of speakers you have built admirably. And I wish everybody a good Sunday, a good Valentine, and uh, keep reading. That is what we do. Thank you, Elon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.